Galatians 3, verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one announces it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. May God help us to hear, understand, and love his word. Thanks, Rebecca, for reading scripture for us. Well, beloved, it's a joy to gather again. Well, this is the first time in two years we are gathering as one assembly. So I'm excited that we're all together again and looking forward to celebrating the Lord's Supper as one assembly once more. Uh, Let me pray for us, and then let's prepare our hearts to receive the word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for your help. We thank you that you are God who speaks. And Father, we pray that you would help us to grasp your truth, help us to respond to you. May our hearts be soft, and may we trust you and follow you through your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. It was known as the noble experiment. Faced with public pressure to address the nation's growing problem of alcohol abuse, Uh, The United States Congress took the momentous step of passing the 18th Amendment and the ban on alcohol was thus enshrined in the U.S. Constitution. So began the era of prohibition in 1920 and and then-President Herbert Hoover described it as a a great social and economic experiment, noble in motive and far-reaching in purpose. But the law against alcohol led to a slew of unintended consequences. During Prohibition, America became a nation of scoff laws. You know, I love that word, scoff laws. Uh, A new word coined to describe those who continued to drink, even if it meant breaking the law. Uh, The bootlegging business exploded with criminal gangs making and selling alcohol. You know, you've heard of Al Capone, well, he made his money during Prohibition. Tens of thousands of illicit liquor stores and nightclubs known as speakeasies sprung up to meet the growing demand for alcohol. And overall alcohol, de- consum- you know, overall alcohol consumption did fall, but not by much. And towards the end of Prohibition, 
alcohol consumption had risen to about 60 to 70 percent of pre-prohibition levels. You know, the American public grew increasingly disillusioned with the law banning alcohol. In 1933, Congress passed another constitutional amendment, the 21st Amendment, this time to repeal prohibition. So after 13 years of so what, being dry, uh, the noble experiment was ended. You know, prohibition may have happened 100 years ago, but I think it still poses a question to us today. Can the law truly change us? Can we change society just by banning something? You know, closer to home, Singapore has been called the fine city. You know, we live in a culture that finds security and in our rules and regulations. Right? If, if we want to manage something, what do we do? We just come up with a policy, come up with a rule, come up with a regulation. You know, we're told to just follow law. You know, because we may be fined for breaking any one of a number of rules and regulations. For example, if you enter a full MRT train when the staff tell you not to, you can be fined. You can be fined for not flushing public toilets. You can be fined for feeding pigeons in public. You know, friends, the law may make us compliant, but will it make us truly courteous and considerate? You know, or to consider a more personal example, especially those of us who are parents, can we truly motivate our children to obey just by multiplying rules? So far in Galatians, the Apostle Paul has made it very clear that we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. You know, contrary to what the false teachers were saying, we are not saved by faith plus keeping the Old Testament law. Right? Paul has been very clear that we do not need to be circumcised in addition to believing in Jesus to be saved. Right? He, said this, he said this several times in his letter, as we've seen. In 2 verse 16, he says, We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And then 3 verse 10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. And 3 verse 11 to 12, the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. No, but wait a minute, Paul. You know, God gave the law, didn't he? So are you saying that the law is a bad thing? How should we think about the law, also known as the Old Covenant, which was given through Moses to Israel in the Old Testament? And how is the law related to the gospel? If we cannot be saved by doing the law, does this mean the law is pointless? Oh, friends, why should questions about the Old Testament law matter to us? I, I, I'm guessing that we probably didn't think very much about that this past week. But, but this matters to us because this question about the law and the gospel really gets to the heart of this crucial point. How can we be right with God? How can we be right with God? By obeying the law or by faith alone in Christ alone? Right, so the big idea of the passage can be summed up in these two key truths. Number one, we are blessed through God's promise, not the law. And number two, the law leads us to Jesus, who fulfills God's promise. So those are the two points that we look at this morning. We are blessed 
through God's promise, not the law. And number two, the law leads us to Jesus, who fulfills God's promise. Uh, so looking at the first point, and this focusing on verses 15 to 18, how we're blessed through God's promise, not the law. Well, you know, if you remember our previous sermon series, we went through the whole of Genesis. And as we went through Genesis, I hope we've seen from that first book of the Bible that right from the beginning, God has always saved sinners by His grace. If you remember God's call of Abraham, He graciously called Abraham out of his pagan background and He promised Abraham a people, a place and blessing. You know, as it says in Genesis chapter 12, He said, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To your offspring I will give this land. You'll notice the repeated I wills in Genesis 12. Not not, he's not telling Abraham, you know, do this and I may, or do this and then I'll respond, but I will. Right? Unconditional promises extended to Abraham graciously. So does the law, which came later right, in the book of Exodus, does that law overturn these earlier promises in Genesis? You know, Paul says not at all. Not at all. Then he cites an example from human experience in verse 15. Paul says, you know, even with a man-made covenant, no one announces it or adds to it once it has been ratified. You know, what's, what's Paul doing in verse 15? He's arguing from the lesser to the greater. If, if even human covenants cannot be changed once they have been signed and sealed, then how much more God's covenant with Abraham? I think we, many of us get the idea of contracts. You know, we, so much of our lives revolves around contracts. Right? We, we depend on man-made contracts to get on with life, you know, whether it's an employment contract or a contract you sign when you purchase or you sell a house. You know, we rely on such contracts and we trust ourselves to such contracts. You know, friends, if, if we trust such contracts, then how much more should we be willing to trust God, the one who makes and keeps His covenant promises? the one who is absolutely true and faithful. But, but there's another thing we need to think about, because what, what do God's promises to Abraham have to do with Gentiles like us? Right? You read Genesis 12, you think, yeah, that's good for Abraham, and that's good for maybe Abraham's physical descendants, the Jews. So what, do, what does Genesis 12 have to do with us? The false teachers claimed Gentiles needed to be circumcised like the Jews, to be saved. In other words, Gentiles needed to become Jews in order to be saved. And only by keeping the law could Gentiles become Abraham's offspring and enjoy God's promises. So basically what the false teachers were saying was that if you don't obey the Old Testament, all these promises don't apply to you because you need to become Jewish in order to enjoy these promises. Well, Paul says not true. Not true. And then look at, look at what he says in verse 16. The, the promise is to Abraham and his offspring. The who are Abraham's offspring. And Paul says, not referring to many offspring, but referring to one, one singular offspring. 
you know, when we read this, it's a bit peculiar because, you know, is, is Paul kind of splitting grammatical hairs here in verse 16? You know, we know grammatically that offspring can also be a plural collective noun, right? I mean, we don't normally say offsprings in the plural because we understand that's a collective noun. You know, but, but Paul isn't splitting grammatical hairs in verse 16. Rather, he's showing us the right way to understand the Bible. Verse 16 is a very helpful verse if we want to think about how do we understand the Old Testament. Paul says you need to read Genesis 12 and the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Old Testament in light of Jesus. Why? Because he is the offspring, singular, who fulfills God's promise to Abraham. The whole Old Testament points to this one offspring, this one true son of Abraham, Jesus. Uh, and this is a really important point because if, if we trust in Jesus, we become Abraham's offspring. That's how we become Abraham's offspring, through this singular offspring. And that's all, not through any other means. So we don't have to be circumcised first. We simply believe in this one true offspring. We have faith alone in Christ alone. And you, you hear what Paul's implying here as well in verse 16. Paul is also implying that Jews are not automatically Abraham's offspring. That, that's the point that he's implying in verse 16. In other words, Jews are not automatically the children of Abraham. What do, what do they need to do? They need to believe as well in this one true offspring of Abraham. Whether you're Jew or whether you're Gentile, the only way you can become the true people of God is to believe in Jesus. That's the only way. Uh, this world tells us we must earn our right to belong. Whether it's a place at school, you know, some of us have taken the PSLE or other entrance exams, you know, we know how we're assessed based on our merit. If you do well, you can get in. If not, too bad. Right? We only get in if we're good enough. Right? We experience this in job interviews as well. Right? You, you get in if you're good enough. Otherwise, that position goes to someone else, someone perhaps better. We live in a culture where to have a seat at the table, we must deserve it. This table is so different. And this meritocratic mindset has infiltrated the church as well. You know, God created the church to be a community of redeemed sinners, saved by His grace alone. But perhaps, you know, we begin to think wrongly that somehow we've merited the right to be here. We've merited the right to belong. And we look down on others, outsiders, who don't quite meet our standards. Has the church become an exclusive club rather than a place that welcomes sinners simply because God welcomes sinners? You know, have we forgotten that we belong to God's people simply because we belong to God's Son? Right? That's the only reason. We belong to God's people simply because we belong to God's Son. You know, last week we heard how reading our Bible rightly helps to understand the gospel, helps us to understand the gospel and to avoid legalism. Well, the Bible is one big story that culminates with the coming of Jesus Christ. You know, the Old Testament looks forward to His coming and the New Testament looks back 
to his first coming and also looks forward to his second coming. And all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ. Now, Jesus has fulfilled God's covenant with Abraham. He is the true offspring of Abraham. And Paul says that covenant that God made with Abraham all those years ago in Genesis 12 or Genesis 15, that covenant has priority over the law because it was established before the law. It says in verse 17 in our text, the law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. Right, again, so helpful that we've looked at Genesis before Galatians because if you remember Genesis 15, that's where God cut a covenant with Abraham. He confirmed that covenant. He ratified that covenant with Abraham. You know, in Genesis 15, you remember God had Abraham cut up these animals, animal pieces, one on each side, and God himself was the one who passed between those two halves of the, animal, of the sacrificial animals. You know, and when God himself passed between those pieces in Genesis 15, God was saying to Abraham that he himself, not Abraham, but he himself, would keep his covenant promises. You know, I will, I will, I will. And how has God done this? We know God has kept his promises by sending Jesus to be the saviour for sinners. You know, we need saving because we are all covenant breakers. We're all covenant breakers. We have been unfaithful to God who made us to know him and to delight in him and because of our sin, we deserve God's judgment against us. But God, in His amazing grace and love, sent His Son to save us through His life, death, and resurrection. As we heard last week, as Mark preached, Jesus became a curse so that the blessings of God can come to us. And the law says to us, do and you shall live. But the gospel proclaims, done. It is finished. Jesus says to us, believe in me, and you shall live. And this is why the gospel is good news, isn't it? The gospel is good news for guilty sinners. The gospel is good news for those of us who cannot do. No matter how hard we try, we cannot do. Not to the standard that God requires we cannot save ourselves, but God gives us life and blessing according to His promise, not according to our performance. Now, friends, have we grown tired and discouraged by trying to be good enough? Good enough for God, good enough for your spouse, good enough for your parents, good enough for your children, good enough for your boss. It's good enough. Are you tired and discouraged because you realize that you cannot be good enough? You cannot be good enough either by obeying God's law or by living up to some other standard that you set or someone else sets for you. How will we answer the question, how are we doing spiritually? Right? You know, sometimes when I ask another Christian, how are you doing spiritually? You know, invariably, uh, the response tends to be, I'm doing okay because I'm doing my quiet time regularly. I'm doing okay because I serve in the church. I'm doing okay because I'm a pastor. <laughs> I'm doing okay because I attend CG regularly, because I do all these activities. 
because I have lots of Christian friends. You know, friends, I, nothing wrong with all those things, obviously, but, but I don't think those things go deep enough. Right? What, what does, how, does, how does Scripture describe the Christian life? Not, not we're okay because we do all these things, but what, what does Paul say in Romans? That we have joy and peace in believing. Joy and peace in believing in Jesus. That, that's how we know we're doing okay, right? Because we have joy and peace in believing. Not satisfaction because we do so much. Nothing wrong with doing. But are we finding our satisfaction? Are we finding our spiritual well-being just simply in what we do? Have we set up a new law for ourselves to obey before we feel that we're well enough? Jesus says to us, done. It is finished. And we can have joy and peace in believing, not because we've accomplished so much for God, but because He has saved us simply by His grace in Jesus Christ. Isn't it wonderful if someone asks us, how are you doing spiritually? We say, well, I'm still trusting in Jesus. I know I don't deserve this, but I'm still trusting in Jesus. My life is a mess, but I'm still trusting in Jesus. That's how I know I'm doing okay. You know, can we say that? I think that reveals that we truly understand the gospel. Not by works, but by faith alone. That's what it means to find our satisfaction in Christ. Does our assurance fluctuate with the inconsistency of our daily lives? You know, beloved, the gospel invites us to come to Jesus. Now, this is not just for non-Christians. This is for us Christians. Those of us who say we know Jesus, the gospel invites us to keep coming to Jesus, who gives rest to our weary souls. So how do we inherit God's blessings? It's either by doing the law or by faith in God's promises. You notice how Paul says these are mutually exclusive. We received the inheritance the same way Abraham did, by faith, not by works. Notice what Paul, how Paul says it in verse 18. God gave it to Abraham by promise. He gave it to Abraham by promise. The law which came later does not change that. Salvation from start to finish is a gift from God. Therefore, receive the promise, right? Receive it with an open hand. Receive it with an open heart. Receive the promise. Don't try to earn it, but receive it. Thankfully, with great gratitude and praise. Receive it. Receive the promise of the gospel by trusting in Christ alone. Number two, the law leads us to Jesus, who fulfills God's promise. Looking at verses 19 to 25. So if the inheritance comes by the promise, then why did God give the law? So verses 19 to 25 tell us the law was intended to lead us to Jesus by doing three things. Right? Three things, to expose our sin, to show our need for a better covenant, and the third one, to drive us to faith. Right? So what does the law do? The law exposes our sin. Paul says in verse 19, the law was added because of transgressions. You know, some understand this to mean that the law was given to prevent sin. But I don't think this is what Paul is saying. Because the following verses highlight the law's inability 
to remedy the problem of sin. So, so he, Paul's not thinking in terms of the law was given to restrain sin. Rather than restraining wrongdoing, the law was given to expose sin. The law reveals God's holy and righteous character and shows us how far short we fall of God's glory. Now, the law helps us to understand that sin isn't some amorphous thing, right? Sin isn't just abstract or subjective. You know, I feel like something's wrong. No, the sin is objective. The law helps us to understand that there is an objective standard of righteousness. The law reveals what God is like. The law reveals His holiness. The law reveals that He is pure, that He is without sin, that He is perfectly righteous. Sin then becomes rebellion against this objective standard that God puts before us in His law. And Paul emphasizes this, notice, by using the word transgressions in verse 19. Transgressions is a particular way of describing sin. Transgressions means there's a line and then we cross that line from right into wrong. that's, That's one definition of sin. We cross that line. We transgress. Why? Because there's an objective standard that we've not met. So the law puts the finger on the specific ways we have gone astray. You know, Paul says this in Romans 7, how the law reveals the depth and extent of our sinfulness. Paul says in Romans 7 verse 7, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. It doesn't, Paul's not saying that, oh, I didn't know sin, I wasn't sinful in the past, but rather Paul is saying, when the law came, I, you know, he says, for I would not have known what it, what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So Paul says in Romans 7 that when the law came, he understood God's standard. Then he realized that the, the covetousness that he was experiencing, that is transgression against God's objective standard. So the law comes to expose our sin. And what's worse the law provokes sin. You know, Paul says in Romans 5, the law came in to increase the trespass, not to reduce it, but to increase it. You think, wait, wait, wait a minute. How, how, does, that, how does that work? You know, the, the law, surely the law is not a bad thing. Right? No, the law is not a bad thing. Rather, when the law confronts our rebellious hearts, you know, how do rebellious hearts react when they're told, you cannot? We want it even more. That, that's exactly how rebellious hearts react to the law. The, the more we're told, don't do this, the more we want to do it, right? We, we're like rebellious teenagers right, who refuse to listen to the law. You know, forbidden fruit tastes sweeter. I think we understand the psychology of that. And that's exactly what the law does. I, I think the, the experience of prohibition is so fascinating because prohibition, showed, pr- prohibition couldn't curb drinking because banning booze only made illegal alcohol much more desirable. People enjoyed going to speakeasies because there was something kind of edgy and exciting about it, right? The law was given to make us realize that our sin problem is worse than we think. We are worse than we think, all of us. We are worse than we think. We tend to think of ourselves as basically good people. Yeah, not perfect, but not that bad either. 
You know, if we think we've mostly obeyed the law, then it reveals that we have a very shallow understanding of the law. For example, the law says you shall not murder, and we think, yeah, got that, never killed anyone before. And then Jesus says to us, whoever is wrongfully angry or speaks unkindly to someone is guilty of murder. You know, the law says you shall not commit adultery. Yeah, yeah, you know, never slept with someone else who is not my wife. And then the law, and then Jesus says, we've already committed adultery in our hearts if we look lustfully at someone. You know, the law doesn't just expose our sinful actions. The law, rightly understood, exposes the blackness of our hearts. That's why the law was given. You know, those of us who garden, you know, we know that before you plant in the garden, what do you do? Number one, you weed the garden, right? You, you, can't, you need to prepare the garden for planting. So you, step one is to weed the garden. And this is what the law does. The, the law weeds the garden of our hearts. The, the law exposes sin, pulling out the weeds of pride, self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. The, the law loosens the soil of our hearts for the seed of the gospel. Now, to change the image up a bit, why would we see a doctor if we thought we were well? Only those who see their sickness, the sickness of sin, will seek the Savior. Jesus came not to call the righteous, but sinners. If you see yourself as a sinner, good. Because Jesus came precisely for you. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, then Jesus has, then you have no need for Jesus. But John Stott says these words, not until the law has driven us to despair of ourselves will we ever believe in Jesus. Not until the law has humbled us, even to hell, will we turn to the gospel to raise us to heaven. So the law exposes our sin. The law also shows our need for a better covenant. You know, in this passage, Paul says the law has its limits. And this has to do with the way the law was given. Right? That's, that's why he says these rather uh, somewhat strange words right? in verse 19. He says the, it, it was put in place, the law was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Paul is probably referring to Exodus 19 in the Old Testament, where God gave the law through angels to Moses in a dark cloud with terrifying fire, lightning, thunder, and earthquakes. You know, if you go back to read Exodus 19, 20, uh, you, you find that that whole situation was so terrifying that the people, the Israelites, were afraid of coming near to God. And they begged Moses to speak to them on God's behalf. You know, they said to Moses, we, we can't bear to hear from God directly. You go up to the mountain, we'll stay here, and you just tell us what God says. Right? So that, that's what Paul means, that the law was given through angels to an intermediary, Moses being that intermediary. Basically, Paul's point is this. The law, because of the way it was given, cannot help sinners draw near to a holy God. The law tells us that we need a better covenant, a covenant that allows us to draw near and allows God, allows God to draw near to us. 
And the covenant with Abraham is better than this covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai. Why? Because God spoke His promises directly to Abraham. Genesis 12. God didn't have to work through an intermediary, but He appeared to Abraham and He said, I will, I will, I will. God spoke His promises directly to Abraham and you know, He calls Abraham His friend. And now God has drawn near to us through His Son. Jesus is God with us. And there's one God and one Saviour for both Jews and Gentiles. And in Christ, there is one people of God. I think this is a reason why we gather as one assembly, and it's such a blessing to come together as one assembly again. So we're recognising that God has made us one, and we want to commit to knowing one another because God has made us one. We want to see one another regularly in this gathering. And in the Lord's Supper, this table before us pictures how Christ has made many one. It is a visible sign of our unity because we share in Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we who are many are one body because we have one Saviour, because we partake of the one bread. So the law shows us our need for a better covenant. Next point, the law drives us to faith. So far, Paul has made it very clear that the law is inferior to the promise. Again, wait a minute, Paul. Are you saying then that the law has no purpose? That it is contrary to the promises of God? That's, that's That's the objection that he deals with in verse 21. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? And Paul says, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. And what Paul says there is the exact opposite of what the Judaizers believed. So they believed, the false teachers believed, that more law equals more life, right? What do you do to have more righteousness? You just have more law. You multiply rules, regulations, and law. That will give you more obedience, more righteousness. Paul says, not at all. That's false. Paul says, you can't just multiply more law. That does not equal more life. And this is fascinating because we know Paul, he's a, he was a former Pharisee who, who loved the law. He once believed, like the false teachers, that the law could save. Right? He used to take pride in his observance of the law. And as far as Paul the Pharisee was concerned, he was righteous and blameless under the law. But but this is a different Paul who's writing these words. Paul has now come to see his own sinfulness and how his own works cannot save him. The law cannot justify or give life to guilty sinners like us. Paul says the law is not meant to save. God did not give the law as an alternative way of salvation to be another way that we can come to him. Paul says in these verses that the law has a different purpose not to save, but to do something else. God gave the law for the purpose of driving us to faith in His Son. Look at verse 22. The the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those 
who believe. Well, Scripture here in verse 22 refers specifically to the law. So how does the law imprison us? Well, the law demands our perfect obedience. The law threatens us with punishment if we fail. So basically, Paul is saying the law, with all its demands, locks us up by exposing our sinfulness and by condemning us. And there's no escape. Right? The law imprisons us. There's no escape because we are guilty as charged. When the law confronts us, the only thing we can say is guilty. We're all sinners and lawbreakers. Then in verses 24 and 25, Paul uses a different image. He says the law is our guardian. You know, in New Testament times, guardians would supervise children from age 6 to when they're late teens. Guardians were known to be very, very strict. <laughs> guardians were known to be harsh disciplinarians. You know, those of us, you remember your discipline master at school? You know, that, that's the image of a guardian, right? There, there are ancient drawings of guardians that people have found, and these are usually depicting guardians as holding a big rod or cane, like rotan, to beat disobedient children. You can imagine guardians were probably not very popular with kids. So the law is like a guardian, a disciplinarian. The law tells us what to do, what not to do, and the law beats us. The law disciplines us, punishes us when we step out of line. So both images of the law as a prison and as a guardian, you know, together these images make the point that we are not free. We are not free. We're under the law. You know, the, the law is like being in transit. You know, those of us, you know, nowadays we can fly again and welcome to being in transit. <laughs> right? You know, when we go on long-haul flights, we, we end up in transit. What, what, what happens when you're in transit? You're not allowed to leave the airport. Right? You don't clear customs, you're not allowed to leave the airport, and you, you're stuck in the transit area of the airport until your connecting flight arrives to take you to your destination. That's what it means to be, being, that's what it means to be in transit. You know, who likes being in transit? Not many of us. Right? Probably not all, not, none of us. Being in transit is not a pleasant experience. But we understand that being in transit is a necessary part of our journey if we want to get to our final destination. The law is like being in transit. The law imprisons us. We're not allowed to do what we we're not allowed to go anywhere. It keeps us in one place. The law keeps us in one place in order to bring us to the final destination. What's the final destination? Not transit, but faith in Christ. That's the destination. And the law holds us until Christ comes. So like Paul says, in order that we might be justified by faith. Verse 24. So the old covenant law was temporary. The old covenant law had a built-in expiry date. You notice how Paul says that word until again and again? In, in this passage, it was put in, the law was put in place until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. The law was put in place until the coming faith would be revealed. Verse 23. The law was put in place until Christ came. Verse 24. So here, here's, what's, here's what God's, God is doing with the law. God uses the law to convict us of our sin and helplessness so that we see our need for a saviour. 
The Lord brings us through this transit of conviction of sin so that we emerge after transit into the gospel because we see that we can't save ourselves and we need Jesus to save us. The Lord leads us to faith alone, in Christ alone. So if, if you read the law and you say, I can do this, then you've misunderstood the law. That's a gross misapplication of the law. Rather, we're meant to read the law and say, guilty is charged. I need a saviour. That's, that's, that, that's how God wants us to respond to his law. Martin Luther said, God wounds in order to heal. He kills in order to make alive. Only Jesus can set us free. Only Jesus has fulfilled the law through his perfect obedience and sacrificial death on the cross. And God raised Jesus from the dead so that we might have life and forgiveness and freedom if we trust in him alone to save us. So the law is not contrary to the promises of God. The law complements the promises of God by making the gospel indispensable, necessary, now, if we think little of the law and of sin, we will think little of the gospel. But the more we feel the crushing burden of the law, if we truly understood what the law is calling us to, the, the more we feel the weight of the obedience that God is calling us to in the law, then the sweeter the gospel becomes to us, the sweeter the freedom of Christ becomes to us. Jesus has come to free us, to deliver us from this present evil age. The new covenant and the new creation have begun in Christ. Therefore, if Christ has set us free, why would we want to turn back? You know, it's a, it's a bit like you arrive at your final destination. Why do you want to go back to transit again? Right, the Lord, if Jesus has set us free, why would we want to turn back to relying on the law to make us right with God? Now, if God's law cannot save us, then how much more powerless are our laws, our rules, our regulations? You think they can save us? You think they can make us better? No, not at all. Why do we rely on them? Why do we base our well-being on them? As prohibition has demonstrated, legislation cannot, cannot change human hearts. Parents, rules may modify behaviour of our children, but rules cannot change their hearts. What do our children need? Not more rules Yes, they need to learn obedience, but what our children really need is Christ and the gospel and the spirit who brings true conversion, who brings them from darkness into light. That's what our children need from us, that we need to show them this is what the power of the gospel is. Not the power of my rules, but the power of Christ and the gospel. You know, make it a point, parents, to, to show Christ to your children, that we, we reflect Christ to them and we urge them to trust in a Savior who loves them, who laid down his life 
for undeserving sinners. Oh, beloved, we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone. How then should we live as Christians? Not by relying on man-made rules or traditions, but by continuing to trust only in Jesus. How do you grow as a Christian? Not simply by doing lots of things, but you grow as a Christian by knowing Jesus more and more, by cherishing Him, by resting in Him, by experiencing in Him the joy and peace in believing. Right, so before we think about doing lots of things, let's ask ourselves, do we have joy and peace in believing? I think our life together would look very different if we have joy and peace in believing. That's how we grow as Christians. And we are blessed through God's promise, not the law. The law leads us to Jesus, who fulfills God's promise. Don't just follow law, follow Christ. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you and praise you for the gospel. Father, we thank you for your wisdom in making promises, in keeping them, even in giving the law to lead us to faith in Christ. Father, we pray that we would trust not in our own efforts, not in our performance for our right standing with you, but Father, help us to trust in your provision of a Savior, your Son. We pray that you draw our hearts to him. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.